Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal, Brent. I would never be so bold as to call myself a keyboardist. I will probably always maintain a beginner's level status with that particular type of instrument, but that has never stopped me from purchasing them. In fact, I've long had a deep-seated desire to acquire many, especially of the vintage analog variety. I imagine that this very specific obsession of mine is connected to the formative experience of hanging out at the local music store in my hometown of Noonan, Georgia. I'd begun taking guitar lessons there when I was 14, and over time had become friends with the employees and regular customers, with many of them acting as valued mentors throughout my teenage years. In particular, my dear friend and future roommate Jeremy Spake would play a prominent role. At some point, Jeremy had given me a cassette tape of his band Flux Capacitor, and after listening to it, it kind of blew my mind. I couldn't believe that someone I knew, who really wasn't all that much older than me, and lived in Noonan of all places, could write and record songs that sounded this good. Shortly after this, Jeremy would offer to help me record some of my songs using his four-track. So one evening after my guitar lessons, we went over to his house to do some recording. And it was there that I came upon, for the first time in my life, a Moog synthesizer. Now, I had heard synthesizers in popular music all my life, but had not really ever pictured the actual instrument that was making those sounds. I would often see the word Moog in the liner notes of albums that I loved, but had no idea what that even meant. But here one was, this mysterious box with knobs and keys with Moog printed on the back of it, just sitting there in the corner of this bedroom filled with gear. And that wasn't the only synth Jeremy had. He had a ton of cool shit. Among his collection, a Juno 60, a Unibox Mini Korg, and by far my favorite of his, his Radio Shack Moog, the realistic MG1. I can still vividly picture him turning that keyboard on and showing me all the amazing sounds it was capable of making. My eyes widened that day and a certain type of music that I've been hearing my entire life suddenly made so much more sense. At that moment, I just got it. I instantly understood why McCartney would make wonderful Christmas time, and I fell in love with the Rockford Files theme song all over again. I likened the experience to my sister smoking her first cigarette with the older kids next door. The cool older kid in my life introduced me to analog keyboards, and I was hooked thereafter. I should also mention that I was extremely susceptible to such influences at this time, because when I was 15, the only thing that I wanted to be was Beck Hansen. Odelay had changed my life just a couple of years before, and I would devour anything that I could somewhat connect back to Beck. After learning what a Moog actually was and what it was capable of doing, I immediately recognized some of the noises coming out of this magical machine as some of the same sounds my hero had used on many of his recordings. But another way in which I was able to connect Moogs back to Beck was through the addition of Roger Joseph Manning Jr. 
to his band, who at that time had recently replaced keyboardist Theo Mondel. I remember having read on Beck's website during this period, and let me just say that Beck's website, which I believe was maintained by a guy who went by the name Truck, was really awesome and thorough, especially for fanboys like myself. But anyways, around this time, I remember reading on there that Manning had also played in another band called The Moe Cookbook. Having not initially understood the context of the band's name, but recognizing that mysterious word Moog as something that I'd seen elsewhere, it became in that moment just a random piece of information that I filed away in my mind. But now that I had been initiated into the club and understood what a band called the Moog Cookbook might possibly entail, I realized that it was something that I should seek out. And when I finally did happen upon a copy of the Moog Cookbook's 1996 self-titled debut album, I put it on and I listened. This is the story of that record. Roger Joseph Manning Jr. and in the world of the Moog Cookbook, I'm known as Miko Eno. And yeah, lots of synthesis and drum machine performance. And I'm Brian Kehue. On the records called Uli Nomi. We just chose fake names because we wanted it to be a kind of character thing and so we have these stage names which we didn't realize some people wouldn't realize the other two guys were also us but it makes sense and then again us synthesizers and drum machines whatever we had collected ended up on the record no i just remembered uh, we also played guitar synthesizer and regular drums too. real drums roger is a quite a good drummer i'm mostly a guitar player i spent most of my life learning and training on guitar so i do play a little guitar on the records we all got to Goof around, let's put it that way. Brian Keyhue and Roger Joseph Manning Jr. would both grow up in California and experience a childhood in which music would be a constant presence. My whole family loves music, and we grew up listening to the radio, so that's 60s, 70s pop radio. But my family had records, and they liked show tunes and classical music as well. I always liked weird stuff, whether that be you know science fiction movies or my turntable scratching off the record and making weird noises. So I was always interested in sound. Yeah, and uh, I wanted to play drums from as early as I can remember, which I did. I didn't have a drum set till I was 11. But my mom and dad made me take piano lessons because they figured if they were going to play for lessons, they wanted me to uh, learn harmony and um, theory and all that stuff that comes with learning a chordal instrument like guitar or piano. Uh, but I didn't care for it, and I didn't practice. There were so many good drummers at my high school that I quickly was like, oh, I can't compete with these guys. So uh, keyboards went over, and I stopped uh, you know, actually practicing drums and aspiring to be a drummer. I wonder how many people, like you started with lessons, so did I, forced piano lessons, really? 
nowadays you get to go to your teacher with a tape and they'll teach you Guns N' Roses on guitar, Metallica tomorrow. We were playing like John W. Shalom piano course number one and yeah, two, yeah. and I was you know learning these songs that didn't even have a melody. I knew they were made up titles and stuff, so I couldn't really tell if I was playing it right. And we didn't enjoy it, but all of us kids in my family took lessons and literally gave it up. But it was a background to to what became useful later, you know, reading music or knowing what chords are and how to move your hands independently. So that did become very useful, but until you get into your own world of, like, the music you like, which now everybody's learned that's the way to teach kids, teach them what they like as well. My sister bought a classical kind of folk guitar, nylon strings, and when she wasn't around, I'd be playing it, learning Deep Purple songs and stuff, trying to figure out the notes. And then finally my parents said, hey, if you want lessons... And we actually found a, a cool teacher who was from my town who taught piano and guitar because I wanted to know both and how they related to each other. And so I did several years of lessons, which were incredibly helpful. Once I learned, like, oh, this is a minor scale, major scale, it was good formal training, but it was kind of more rock and roll. It is through the study of their instruments, as well as emerging styles within popular music, that Keyhue and Manning would gain an interest in synthesizers. Uh, well, for me, I mean, um, you know, my piano teacher, although is very suburban, uh, legit, classical, generic uh, training, uh, she subscribed to Keyboard Magazine, and they had some rock star on the cover of every issue since its inception in 75, and uh, they were all standing in front of whatever hot rod piece of gear they had, and I didn't understand any of it, but, I mean, you know, I knew what the keyboard did, so I was immediately intrigued by what the buttons and dials and levers and patch bays and all that was going to get you and um uh then you then you started hearing bands like Devo and, and so forth that were actually in the top 40 whose entire sound was based around electronic keyboards so uh you could you know it was very easy to tell what guitar was all about when you were a little kid because you were surrounded by classic rock bands from Sabbath to Kiss to Zeppelin um but um yeah, when uh, new wave, synth pop, all that stuff started happening, it was very easy to hear and see. And then, of course, all the pop production by the David Fosters of the world and everything. I mean, it went all entirely keyboard, except for the occasional guitar overdub or strings. And um, I, I was just fascinated by that world. And I was fascinated by the fact that ultimately you could be a one-man band if you wanted with the drum machines um, that were also becoming more available and more plentiful and then sampling uh, was created in the late 70s early 80s as well uh, again the selling point was you could have any instrument that you could sample at your fingertips I mean there were bands that had careers they, they did that and although the trumpets didn't sound like a trumpet at the end of the day you ended up getting something wholly other in the process that was very exciting for a time um, and then you know it goes through uh, periods of peaks and valleys of the technology burning itself out, but then, of course, something else is coming along right around the corner. Uh, I was fortunate enough that I had um, a piano teacher that loaned me a Micromoog. Uh, that was in 83. Did you have a manual for the Micromoog? No. Oh. No, it was, it was learn on the job. Mm -hmm. um, and interestingly enough, my brothers, even though I told them don't touch this thing because it's not mine, my younger brothers figured out how to turn it on. They were screwing around with it, and I came home, and they had made some of the most amazing sounds I didn't even know this thing could do because they didn't know what they were doing. They just started turning 
buttons and knobs. Of course, I chased them out of the room and then tried to back reverse engineer whatever the hell they had done. The first synth I actually put money down to buy was a used JX8P in 86. But I spent the other half of my money on a Mirage sampler because I wanted to have the best of both worlds. And then my first like OG analog synth was in 92. Uh, I bought a used uh, ARP Pro Soloist DGX. I literally remember getting for $90, which is why I bought it, because I didn't, I didn't have any money. Yeah. I remember playing a few synths, like touching one in a store. Stores didn't have synthesizers. They had saxophones and trombones and reeds, and they had a few guitars and no Marshall amps that I ever saw in a store. No Vox. AC30, hell no. But they occasionally had a Rhodes or maybe a, you know, some kind of clavinet maybe. But once in a while a synth would show up. There was a mini Moog in a store, but you couldn't touch it. And then a Krumar came in and, okay, I can play a couple notes and that's the sound of a synth. And eventually I was in a, a covers band and playing guitar, but we wanted a keyboard to be able to do Cars and Blondie and whatever new wave music was there. So the drummer and I split an ARP Odyssey, like the black <laughs> model ARP Odyssey which is an amazing keyboard, and it had no instructions, but it had a little book they call the patch book, and you basically set all the settings to these settings, and you get a bomb noise, and this one is a bass, and this one's a trumpet. So you had to kind of, as Roger said, reverse engineer why these settings make that sound, and that's how I learned synthesis was on that thing. And I think we had it a year or so, and then it got stolen one day, never saw it again, but pretty cool synth. Eventually, Keyhue and Manning's love of music would also lead to an interest in learning how to record it. I remember weirdly that department stores, like you could buy skis and camping equipment and clothes, and then they had a reel-to-reel tape machine. So I ended up getting one, and it was only two channels, but you could bounce from the left to the right, which was mono-to-mono. And I ended up layering like eight guitars or trying my voice a bunch of times. or, But you couldn't, of course, go backwards. You could only do a new overdub and hope it worked and then keep it, and then bounce, bounce, bounce. So that was a good way to learn to uh, kind of structure things and arrange, but I think I had no rhythm machines at all for many years. It was just guitar layering and synth parts and stuff, too. And then four-track cassette, then you start to learn to do things where you can punch in and out all the basics that are so easy once you get to that level. And then after that, I kind of went towards real studios uh, whenever possible to try to get to a real studio and use their gear, which was nice. Uh, My partner had a... uh TAC 4-track, his dad's TAC 4-track reel-to-reel in high school, and we uh, created demos on that, which was fun, super, super limiting, but fortunately we were doing like trio music, uh, guitar, bass, synth, drums, actually, and then we bounced that all down. You know, it's the standard stories you've heard, you bounce that down, you sing on top of that. Soon thereafter, it's it's all, you know, cassette demos, 4-track cassette and whatever. Uh, I bought and used the 8-track in 80... Six, uh, Fostex quarter inch, and started doing stuff with my Emacs and the drum machine. It's just trial and error. You have no idea what you're doing. You don't even know how to get a good signal to tape. Uh, you're failing miserably, but you're so excited at the possibilities that you just keep doing it and you keep doing it. And um, I mean, that's literally my story all the way through all the Jellyfish demos. I mean, that's how we got our record deals. Were on my Fostex eight track quarter inch. In 1989. Manning would form the San Francisco-based band Jellyfish with high school classmate Andy Sturmer. Initially signed to Atlantic Records, the band would move to the Virgin subsidiary Charisma Records and release two albums with the label 
before disbanding in 1994. Shortly after the band's demise, Manning would meet Keyhue through a classified ad he had placed in order to sell an Optigan. Yeah, sadly I was meeting a good friend with a terrible instrument and uh, forced <laughs> He was looking for one, and I had one to go. No, I wanted one bad. So. We, all, we all wanted one bad until you meet one. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've had nine of those. It's a toy organ made by Mattel. Most of us didn't know what it was until, well, years later. I mean, maybe some people who lived through that had one, but I never saw anybody own one. Then I found out about this optical organ disc playing technology thing that somebody showed me, and I went, that is insane. It's got, like rhythm tracks and chords and it's crazy but they're made of plastic they're made with irish electronics which is crazy and made by mattel so they turned up now and then at yard sales and i kept buying them and trying to fix them but eventually became kind of an expert at fixing them but they're still a nightmare and i you know at the time i was still into them and i had an extra one roger was looking so he showed up and i go oh this is the guy from jellyfish i recognized him from having seen some shows already and we, we bonded originally on, oh, I like you like old keyboards, like Wurlitzers, and we grew up on a lot of the same records, and we, we talked, and, and I said, oh, there's a couple cool music stores that have stuff in the back room, because nobody wants an ARP synthesizer right now. Nobody wants these things. There's three ARPs in the back of this one music store on, in L.A., really. And we went back there, and I think it was like 75 bucks. You know, pick which one you want, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. These are the lowest points, though. I mean, mini moogs were like three hundred dollars, and I wouldn't buy one. Yeah, and it was crazy. But you know, we didn't have much money. We were still on the you know thrift store clothing, thrift store furniture level. Still are. <laughs> <laughs> still prefer it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sharing a mutual appreciation for analog keyboards, Keyhue and Manning's friendship would form at a fortuitous time in which the dominance of grunge and alternative rock in popular music would cause the market to be glutted with vintage synthesizers at extremely affordable prices. We were exploring this world as the generation after the generation that had invented it and used it and already had a time of artistry with it. Um, we were uh, kind, of, kind of combing through the graveyard, if you will, and... You have to remember how hard that was without the Internet because you could really only learn and educate yourself via uh, used magazines or books from the library or um, old uh, recordings on VHS tape of old concert footage that was uh, somehow circulating around to collectors. And you could literally see, oh, there's that musician I know. I see he's playing a Moog and he's playing a Prophet. What's the other thing he's playing? I've never, I've never even seen that before. What is that? And your friend might go, oh, I saw that in Keyboard Magazine. Do you have a copy of some used keyboard? Yeah, my friend has some used copy. And you, you have to be a, a research scientist. I mean, it's like you were excavating. And then, of course, the added bonus of living in Los Angeles was that you had the recycler used, used trade paper that would circulate every week. I'm sure there was one for the East Coast and New York and other urban areas, but... Los Angeles being the music-making mecca that it had already been for 40 years, there was always equipment being bought and sold. And keyboards were no different in the late 80s, early 90s. 
um, because a lot of the 60s, 70s guys were getting rid of their combo organs and early synthesis and electronic pianos, clavinets, organs. So, uh, and again, it was highly unfashionable because uh, guitar-based rock in the form of grunge was ruling the airwaves. So, the, all those things add up timing-wise for it to be uh, very fruitful for guys like Brian and I and a handful of others to be curious about this world and go on these treasure hunts. So finding it, number one, was hard. And then what were, what was it going to cost? So I remember Brian and I, we knew all about the modular stuff, but it, the prices had already started going up. We couldn't afford that. So we, we had to settle <laughs> for all the other shit, like a decent monophonic or a good polyphonic. And, you know, two of the most uh, popular and expensive polyphonic keyboards right now are the Juno 60 and the Juno 106. They, they have been for the last four years or so. I can't even believe what they're going for. They're considered a, a wonderful uh, trophy instrument to have in your arsenal. And Brian and I passed up hundreds of those. Because one, they were so commonplace, and two, their keyboards that if you actually had the money were better than those. Yeah. And so, not that those suck, it's just that there were plenty of others that outperformed them that, that offered so much more and so I mean I literally I don't even know how many Juno 60s and 106s that we passed up didn't care they were all $100 each $150 each because our eyes were set on Jupiter 8s Jupiter 6s even Jupiter 4s or any of the other polyphonic keyboards a day Oberheim profits and why waste our time with this kind of entry level you know Juno 60 and now they're just like so, yeah, I have you know young people. Oh, do you, do you have you have a Juno 60? Actually, I don't. I have, I have, I have <laughs> everything almost else. everything else but that. It's just funny that way. But uh, yeah, it was quite it was quite a time to. Again, if I'm going to turn 56, I can at least say yeah, I was around for the great 90s dumping of of 70s analog equipment. Inspired by the 1968 Moog-centric album Switched on Bach, as well as others of a similar ilk. Keyhue and Manning decide to start a band. If you like the instruments we liked, which are largely analog synthesizers, there was a period when those were newer than new, like 1969 after Switched on Bach came out. Everybody in that world thought, oh, we'll have a hit playing a synthesizer, and it didn't work for anybody else. But there were a lot of records launched in that period that were just over the top. And these are, again, a $1.50 records back then. There wasn't much vintage vinyl. In fact, CDs were out. Vinyl was dumping. So we were buying up a lot of records in parallel with buying up the keyboards. And we liked these over-the-top synth records. So over-the-top means someone that's putting a loud synthesizer, not just some kind of quiet background instrument not just some kind of icing on the cake. It's the main thing. It might be the bass and the lead sound with just a drummer in the background. And they're actually kind of comical. Most of them are cheesy, switched on Bacharach, uh, Big Band Moog, uh, Country Moog, things like that. We love those records and always joked about, you know, because there was no Stones album, but there was Beatles. And there was... Burt Bacharach and things like that where people took entire things like the Tommy musical by The Who and did it on synthesizer. So the reference was already built in. That was an old thing that was already 25, 30 years back, and most people didn't like those records either because they were a joke. They were done by some brilliant people who were amazing arrangers. 
They were terrible at working the brand new synthesizer they just bought, but they knew how to. They had Hal Blaine playing drums. They had the freaking session musicians from the Beach Boys and whatever backing tracks going down. So there's incredible musicianship and cool arranging with like the most lame synthesizer sounds on top, but very bold. And so we kind of like the juxtaposition of it's not just kids with synths. Kids could never afford those. It was high level musicians trying to play something, but where the glide is too slow or the vibrato is too strong, which normally you'd know how to fix that. We all do now, but back then they didn't know how to fix a problem like that, and it made it fun. So I remember a few times leaving uh, messages on Roger's voicemail where I would do like a jellyfish track with an ARP 2600 <laughs> and just a couple measures and then just hang up the phone, and he would know it was me. <laughs> but was there a moment when we decided to record an actual... I remember us... Um, as my bands did whatever they did and you were involved in the music business to whatever degree you were, we were meeting people. Um, we were meeting lots of bands start up in Los Angeles and we had various friends who were in successful projects or had recording budget. We kept telling them we have these instruments not only available, but we can come in and play them. You know, don't you want to decorate your music with this kind of stuff? And nobody was interested at all, and I, I I I understand that because it wasn't at all fashionable. But our generation was starting to wake up to this stuff. I mean, that's why you started having bands like the Rentals, and uh, there were others, and the whole whole lounge core scene with you know, it was a combustible Edison and, and Pizzicato Five, right. and people were waking up to this because it was generational. It was it was absolutely thrift store swap meet culture. I remember we were hanging out at Brian's house. A lot of our gear was housed. Uh, in his bedroom at his house because I, I lived two hours away and we would screw around with stuff so I kept a lot of my pieces at his house his apartment and I remember just walking by the bedroom and seeing all that stuff in there I'm like this is stupid we need to like use it and I think we just said out of frustration let's let's make our own recordings and then I think we got really excited when we realized oh well let's just do a modern version of those switched on records and that, that got us very excited because the possibilities were the uh, subversive part of me saw the possibilities immediately for dethroning all of the pompous guitar rock of the day. Um, Which is funny because Roger and I have this huge punk rock background. We are, if you want to even look at it, as much punk rock basis to our lives as anything. Uh, no keyboards in that music, certainly, <laughs> except for maybe suicide or something. Yeah. But. Uh, but the fact that grunge was all over everywhere, you weren't allowed to even have a piano or a Hammond in that stuff. Black Hole Sun was the very first thing we did together. And it's a great tune. It It is so well written that a symphony or a barbershop quartet or a horn quintet could play it, and it would be an incredible song. So that's the kind of thing we started looking for was melodically and chord changes and structure will these songs work, whereas some kinds of power rock, as we found out, don't work. We did want to do that, and we started just for fun. I don't think that there was a plan other than, damn, let's use these instruments for what they're good for. No one will let us put them on their records. And it's just wrong to use these kind of disco drums and those kind of sounds. <laughs> it's offensive to people back then. And we thought, well, that's punk rock then. Let's be offensive in a niggy pop kind of way, but with the cheesy culture of disco and, and bad new wave stuff. With the concept established... The duo begins working on tracks at Kihu's apartment, 
and would receive some early encouragement from some key outside sources. I think we had done four songs in the bedroom on an ADAT, if you know what that is, a digital eight-track recorder. So mostly it's drums on track one. We'd do a bass line, maybe a chord pad. And most of our tracks on the first record fit onto eight tracks, sometimes a few more. But we had been listening to it, and I had a cassette in my car. And Roger and I went to the Roxy to see Pizzicato 5, Japanese group that was kind of retro lounge music. After the show, Roger goes, there's Mark Mothersbaugh, singer <laughs> of Devo. And I were like, oh, my God, because we are enormous fans of Devo, but also not just that we like the music, we respect that they do art and that they are performers and they think about what they do. But I ran to my car and gave Mark this tape. I don't know, I don't know what we were doing, just, hey, we think you might like this. And you, got, you, you, got, you got very um, bold. Yeah. I, I, I didn't even, I didn't want to bother the guy. I mean, he was yeah. like fucking Elvis Presley to him. I know he is. And you, and you said you cold walked up to him as he was getting in his car with his date. Yeah. Like, and here, you need to check this out. Uh, okay, thanks, guy. And a few minutes later, he pulls back up at the curb, rolls the window down, and said, this is amazing, I need to talk to you guys. And he did a loop around the block and came back in front of the Roxy, where we were all still standing. And said, this is great, this is incredible, and then uh, encouraged us to come to work for him, but it didn't quite suit what we were doing at the time. Amazing invitation we from a flattered. great yes. guy. And he remains a good friend of ours to this day, but... Uh, that boost made us kind of realize it was something real, although it took us so long to do that first record. I remember the Beastie Boys and Lenny Kravitz, and we go, everybody's going to do this before us. Everybody's yeah. going to finish and make a synth record. You could feel it in the air. Everybody was starting to understand how cool these fucking things were, and people who had money, money was no object. So they, mm -hmm. could, they could go, I want an ARP 2600. Well, I can't find one. That's okay. I'll call some dealer in Germany and pay whatever they're asking for it. Yeah, And, of course, we didn't have that kind of money. So we were like, it's only a matter of time. One of these guys is going to fucking go nuts. It was something like two or three years when we made the record and we're even kind of trying to do something with it. And uh, a, a, an artist came along and did a record called Grunge Light, which was like MIDI versions of grunge songs. And oh, it was, God, I remember that. It was okay, but it made a little splash because it was anti-grunge. And we're like, damn, this is our stuff. We've already got some of the same songs finished. But eventually... Um, we connected to a guy who is no longer with us named John Carter, typically just called Carter. And he's a really successful manager, Sammy Hagar and hey, different guy. people. He wrote some great songs like Incense and Peppermints, but he loved our music. that he personally shopped it to labels around the country because he thought it needed to be a record. And he was managing the Eels at the time, who were friends of ours. And he got us this small label deal on Restless Records, but more that the people at Restless um, got it. The people that work there, who are still friends of ours, more than the label heads and stuff, really understood this was the cool culture. This was kind of perfect timing to do it. After signing with Restless, the band would go about finishing the record, continuing work at Kihu's apartment, as well as some other locations, or, as the liner notes would state, Mose Isley Spaceport, Level 3. We did most of the tracking in my bedroom. That's all we needed. When you've got a synth, you just plug into the back of an ADAT with your cable, and it's ready to roll with a little mixer. You can hear everything. So it was only eight tracks for most of that. But didn't we do some of the Buddy Holly at your rehearsal? Oh, that was Imperial Drag rehearsal space? Yeah, that was, that okay. was a fire fox or something in the okay. valley. Okay. 
my other band, Imperial Drag, at the time was rehearsing in the valley, uh, getting ready to go into the studio, and we had this room locked out, um, and uh, we would go in there with for Moo Cookbook stuff in the off hours because it was such a nice space to not disturb anybody back at Brian's apartment. <laughs> it became a, you know, uh, which I loved, it became like a full-time, like, just work-around-the-clock uh, music factory and... Today we're doing some serious guitar rock, and tomorrow we're doing wacky Moo Cookbook synthesizer stuff. So that would be the one exception. I remember Buddy Holly being yeah. done at this rehearsal space. And uh, the, the uh, Offspring song was done there a lot. Yep. And then we did some drum tracking and some overdubs at the college I was working at yeah. called Cal State Dominguez Hills. And that became useful for, you know, getting a vintage drum sound like we wanted and to also bring out some of the bigger keyboards like Mellotron, Hammond organ, things like that. The the album is really a um, uh, a walking testament to shit breaking down and, and the technology not being perfect at that time. Very often, however the machine would malfunction, we were in record and we would go, wow, well, instead of trying to erase that and correct it, why don't we extrapolate upon that, start making it another theme to this arrangement. Um, and uh, to give ourselves that kind of freedom was probably the most enjoyable aspect of this whole project for me. I, I was concurrently involved in a, you know, for all intents and purposes, a serious rock pop project, uh, post-Jellyfish called Imperial Drag. We were signed to uh, a major label and Every time I got together to do that project, both with my bandmates and the record company, and so it was, you know, all right, got to get down to business, guys. And you know, and there were, there was an objective. We we wanted to do our art. We wanted to reach as many people as possible. So there were decisions that were always taken in consideration about what was going to do better at radio or MTV and what you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then I and then after that, I'd go over to Brian's house at the end of the day, and we just go fuck it, whatever the whatever the hell we feel. And and very rarely did we like, you know, debate something because we would usually just go down a path and see where it took us. And at the end of the day, we might go, nah, that experiment crashed and burned, and we'd leave it off the record. But often the experiment succeeded because it was uh, it took us to a place that neither of us were going in our, our daily music making lives. When you have low standards, it's easy to reach them. <laughs> so, Isn't that we, a George Martin quote? Yeah. <laughs> Brian and I. While we'd heard these songs, we weren't necessarily super fans. I mean, we didn't come home and like practice REM songs when we got off work, and this was not this was not um, our gospel. And so we were we were learning these songs on the spot. So we said, okay, we're going to record this Lenny Kravitz song, whatever. Okay, Roger, have a have a stab at the melody. All right, let's fire up the sound. That sounds pretty good. Let's go. Well, I, I don't already know the song. I'm learning it on the spot. And so if we're in record and I'm using my ear, there's going to be mistakes. There's going to be accidental notes. And again, often that, that bred some happy accidents. Because there's a lot, that's my point, there's a ton of spontaneity happening on these projects. There's no computer. You can't be, you have to have a philosophy and then just kind of start putting your money where your mouth is kind of thing. You have to just go for it. With DAW recording, you can completely just... Uh, uh, stop at an impasse and reevaluate, take a vote, 
and completely reassessing. And you just you, with the ADATs and, and our limited time, there simply weren't those options. Thankfully. And in the end, they made a record. lounge-tinged rendition of Soundgarden's 1994 signature song, Black Hole Sun, replacing the original's mood of encroaching darkness with a lively playfulness. The track is propelled by its electronic bossa nova beat, in which various synth lines gurgle and glisten, creating a soundscape that evokes the feeling of being underwater or in outer space. That might be Opus 3, which is a very underrated Moog keyboard. And it's not a heavy synthesizer type thing, but it does strings and organs and a little bit of polysynth. But what's cool about it is, I mean, it does a lot uh, and is not yet rated because of those things. It's not really a heavy synthesizer fat bass thing. But for us, we use the crap out of that as well as Polymoog on some things because it's such a usable musical keyboard. I seem to think that the strings might be on that. Since yeah, it's they, either that or this one of you had a Selena, I remember. Yeah. Uh, and then the Farfisa's combo organ is on there. Definitely. Playing a lot of the comping. Um, the bossa nova was the start of it, though. It's just what is cheesy and fun and lightweight. And so I get an impression of roller skating when I hear that song. That sounds like total roller rink music <laughs> to me. But I remember there's bell tones that I think could be the Opus 3. But do 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 Oh, right. Yeah, I have no freaking clue what that was. I think that's Opus 3, which is kind of, again, layering like three little synths. The ARP Quadrant kind of did that, where they stuck a few circuit boards on top of each other. Before we had MIDI, some companies tried to make like an organ on top of strings, and that's the way they would do it, was just put two circuit boards next to each other. Originally recorded by Weezer for their 1994 debut album, the track Buddy Holly contains an epic opening of slowly churned grandeur that eventually morphs into a synthetic sound parade of marching band brass and doorbell chimes.
Every band in the world, I don't care who you are, had a big, ominous opening tape before they came on stage. And they were more, the more pompous, the better. They would use Clockwork Orange, or they would use 2001, or, you know, whatever they could use. It was just something heavy and impressive before. And so we thought, what would be, you know, the opposite of what Weezer would do would be something like that. And where you don't even complete the melody, you're transposing, and you're doing fragments of it, like an overture in an opera. And that was all done with the Gleeman Pentaphonic, which is a really, really rare and beautiful sounding keyboard. Absolutely stunning sounding instrument. And I just remember that one very, very well for a couple reasons, but a lot of that track is Roger's Memory Moog, and then the synth we love so much, the Moog Sonic 6, which is a plasticky blue analog synth, mostly made for schools. But it has these really freaky modulations. You can do two LFOs at once. You can do weird sweeping things with square waves. And it's, it's kind of thinner sounding, but also we love thin sounds. We love thin bass. We love thin melodies because they cut through. Whereas everybody now is, you know, fatter's better. It's not really true. We like to do a lot of one oscillator bass notes and things. So Buddy Holly's a very clear memory of doing that. One of the features of those old records, we were copying their style was to do a track that is detached from the original. Roger's great skill is in arranging stuff, whether it be for strings or keyboards or a whole rock band. So we would often bounce ideas around, but Roger could really implement stuff with interesting chord substitutions with his jazz background, things like that. And we also had, you know, I have, I have crazy synth programming skills to make bizarre sounds. We were trying to find a way to break up the melody. Da, da. Da 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 And so Roger's going through the presets on his memory mode. There's the first one, the seventh one, the twenty-third one, and then whatever, twenty-eight is like ding ding and it's a doorbell sound. But I don't think they intended it that way. But when he put those exact interval and that timing, we fell on the floor laughing like holy crap, a doorbell. We just found it and it just works perfectly. So whenever we played the show live we brought a freaking doorbell, even left it in the packaging, and we would push the button on that point to make the doorbell sound happen. And a happy accident, but that was one of those great moments that it made a joke. We're, we're happy to make uh, everybody laugh. Hopefully we're making something creative and cool underneath it, but the whole point is that it is a big cartoon, what we tried to do. Definitely a day we remembered because it was filmed. I had a girlfriend at the time who had a video camera, so there's us kind of discovering the track as we're making it. And all three of us are just laughing our heads off. That's mostly what Roger and I did making the records was... I need to see that. It was serious, but how much can we make ourselves laugh? Like, that's really a bad drum fill. Great. Let's use it. 
And we have a couple keyboards that freaked out, and they would play the wrong notes when you hit a G sharp. Okay, great. It would glitch and play the wrong yeah, notes, and we giggle. would we would use that over and over again. Don't clean that keyboard. Following Buddy Holly is the band's TV theme song version of Green Day's Basket Case. Recall that almost every track does have a theme. It has its own world, but we intended that. So when we started a track, maybe not the Black Hole Sun, which was the very first one we did, but if we started a track like this, we said, what would be good for this pop punk Green Day song? What would be the antithesis of it? You know, and also conceptualize what world, like it definitely was a TV show theme. That was our goal. And there's also some 80s, 70s pop records that have that feel to it, too. You know, uh, by virtue of the fact that these songs are arranged on keyboards versus guitar, or, you know, for a string quartet or something, or, there's naturally going to be uh, things that happen. I mean, yeah, when, when that song starts, it, it sounds like the intro to some like, 70 or 80s TV show, but that's... A lot of those shows were written... You know, by arrangers, it's, it's, it's in a school of, of, of arranging, and half the time we might have talked about something, but the other half the time it just starts happening, because um, you're working on keyboards, you're working on synthesizers, electric pianos, a lot of uh, instruments from those eras, and it's going to remind the listener of a bygone era. It's just naturally going to happen. Roger's an expert at arranging, specifically with, you know, uh, a studying vintage pop and even you know jazz fusion or whatever there's a style that comes from each of those this one basket case it's this based around that Wurlitzer keyboard sound that almost nobody was using uh, you know certainly Roger had in jellyfish but most people weren't and it had a a soft kind of mellow almost icky and we don't mind that feeling of like you know stuff that is uh, verging on the edge of tasteless soft jazz instead of pure pop. <laughs> or, or yacht rock, which term yeah. wasn't even coined at the time, but has become oh so fashionable and not a bad word. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow. We'd move forward on an idea if we were making each other laugh and going, oh my God, this is so disgusting. Nobody would be doing this right now in the height of grunge. Well, better us than somebody else. You know, let's have fun with this because who the hell else is going to do this? In that vein, there's a lot of soft, melodic synth stuff on radio and television that 
kind of stuff. And so a lot of that gets used on this particular song, but also in other parts of the record. And one of the things we discovered, and it's very obvious in this one, if you know, listen for it, uh, the chorus, as I wrote a note down, was a guitar played through processors, like through one of the synths to make it chop up and sound a little more synth-like. Guitar is playing a melody, but you know that's not outside the realm of the arrangers we were trying to work around, that vintage style. But then in the background, Roger's playing these melodies, which are just random counter melodies, not really composed. But we found if you stuck two or three of them together, they actually work well, and it becomes this trick that Stevie Wonder has all over his records. Uh, like, They Won't Go When I Go is a perfect example. Soft, flute-like melodies, but there's two or three of them playing at once, not relating to each other, but because they're on the right chords, it actually makes complicated harmony. We're making a joke record, but in the background of the melody of that one, people can hear it. These little sweet melodies are flying around the main melody. We really enjoyed the uh, juxtaposition of the Gilman Street punk rock sound of Green Day uh, against uh, you know some late 70s TV game show theme. There's a specific story. There's a producer named Rob Cavallo who now runs Warner Brothers Records, but I had engineered on the very first record he produced as a new producer. Um, and we met each other through that, and he knew about the Moog Cooper project. So when it came out, of course, he got a copy to listen to. But his first big production was right after the record I did was the Green Day record. Obviously, you know, there's a good connection there, but he played it for them. Did you get that story from him, Rob? Rob maybe played it for them. I don't remember who, but Billy Joel officially heard it. Uh, I, I only know this because uh, I was playing with Beck at the time, and we were doing an uh, Outside Lands Festival in um, San Francisco. And Green Day was on the bill, and we were all hanging out backstage, and somebody introduced us, and I, I introduced myself as the guy from Moog Cookbook, and I just asked him if, if we'd, you know, if he'd ever heard our cover of Basket Case. And he uh, had a look of horror on his face and turned pale white and said, oh my God, you guys, you guys almost destroyed my, my life. And we're like, what do you mean? What do you mean? And the story was that uh, he had heard the song, and he told his his bandmates, "Oh my God, I didn't know I was capable of writing elevator music. That I was capable of doing music. And clearly, these people who I don't know have shown me that, as punk rock as I thought my song was, that I wrote like an easy listening. Ultimately, I wrote an easy listening elevator music song, which he was very ashamed of. And then, like he kind of like grew out of that and realized." Oh no, I can actually. This was apparently took him months that he was like, "Oh no, I can actually have a good laugh about this with my friends, and not take it so seriously." So fortunately, I was meeting him on the other side of that. He, he had gotten rid of all of his anger uh, and um, resentment around that, and was actually able to shake my hand and go, "Good job." <laughs> but it did quite a number on him because you know. He, it was hard for him to wrap his mind around the power of arrangement, you know. And I think when I heard the story from Rob Cavallo, he just had played it, and then they were pissed off at first because they thought it was the real Muzak company selling oh, this right. song to dentist offices. And then he's like, no, 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 that's it's just a joke record. It's not a real record. And they're like, oh, God, thanks. Because they thought it was suddenly in dentist offices. You know, part of that spin was there. But even as a joke record, it was still weird for him to understand his music could be translated.
track Come Out and Play is the point in the album in which we are loaded into a spaceship and launched into the cosmos. Another concept, we love the record I Feel Love by Donna Summer, done by Georgia Maroder. And that's not just a disco classic, but it's an amazing synth record. And if you don't know the history, Bowie evidently heard it and came to see Brian Eno and said this Donna Summer record is the future of music. There's almost no real musicians. It's all played by synthesizer, which is sort of true. But, I mean, that was such a goal for us. Okay, let's take this Offspring song, What Can We Do With It? Instead of doing something kitschy and disco, let's go Donna Summer techno. Most of it is based around that uh, steady drum beat thing, but with the synthesizer. Yeah, the sequencing. <clears throat> so there's a lot of simple stuff where we're doing that. We do bring a vocoder in because we didn't want to sing on the record, and not everything can be a straight synth melody. They they kind of need some of those hooks, like got to keep them separated is a one-note line. You can't really play a melody. We had to do something to bring out the part. Rather than singing the verse, we didn't need that. It had a melody. And even most of the chorus has a melody. We can play it on a keyboard. But that one part uh, that their buddy sang for them, we were like, oh, that's the hook, but it's only... wouldn't work on its own. But again, we like the vocoder, too. It's a cheesy reference to the past at that point. Now, everybody's kind of brought it back where it's just another tool, like a wah-wah pedal or a piano. It's electronic, and you just plug a mic into the unit, and you plug an instrument into the other part of the unit, and so it shapes the sound of the microphone over the instrument. If you went ba-da, ba-da, whoa, 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 you know, it would do that to a drum set, to a reverb, to a vocal, to a keyboard, but it's really hard to hear unless you put a thick sound like a keyboard into it. Ultimately, it's, uh, while it's unique to the person's mouth shapes, it's a very primitive filter, right? It, it re uh, replaces, essentially, the filter of the signal. Yeah, so you need a nice, thick sound to make it work. And then uh, this one, as I recall, you know, we did the keep them separated and so forth, but at the end, it really goes into this 1976 Americana bicentennial Star Wars thing.
It's just repeating over and over again like the Donna Summer does. And we do the string synthesizer. It's like through a phaser, which is certainly takes a, a little, not a boring synth, but a very generic thing. It makes it more tricky. Roger and I were definitely pedal collectors in the 80s and 90s when people didn't care. They were like 10 bucks, 30 bucks a piece. So we'd say like, well, let's try out the DOD phaser or the MXR flanger, or let's just pull <laughs> our pedals out. And which one sounds best? We tried six pedals and then push go, you know, when we find the right sound. In 76, you know, people were all like Americana and this fake pompous kind of uh, nationalism and patriotism and stuff. But right around that time, Star Wars had come out. And the biggest record of that summer was like Miko, this disco arranger who made a record where he incorporated Star Wars themes with disco. And then they had lasers going back and forth like starship shooting, which is just a total joke now. If you hear it, it just... It wasn't. Well, it was then. Yeah. Too. But <laughs> yeah. some people thought, oh, wow, it's cool. And of course, lasers don't make a sound. They're made of light. And spaceships in space don't make a sound because there's no atmosphere to travel through. It's all just a big lie. <laughs> but if we play that sound, everybody says, ooh, a laser. Yeah. And then, of course, there's an explosion at the end, which is like sound generation 101 on a synth is explosions and wind noises. So, easy stuff. Petty classic Free Fallen, which originally appeared on his first solo record, Full Moon Fever, and was co-written by one Jeff Lynn, a man not shy about his love of the synthesizer, is rendered here as a song taking place in a world inhabited by sad robots that eventually descends into an apocalyptic event, thus producing what could possibly be the strangest Tom Petty cover ever recorded. definitely not weird that's why we bent it in that direction i guess you know as we try to take things away from where they normally belong but the beginning is really straight uh, i remember the intro because as one of my friends says buy a synthesizer every song needs an intro and you can stick a synth intro on anything <laughs> and so we often did it has that random boop, 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 sample and hold circuit which is a random bleeping sound that everyone says is the sound of a computer. But if you think of your laptop or desktop, it doesn't make sounds like that when it's computing. That was like a stupid, cliched idea of what computers would sound like in the future. So we use that, which is very un-Tom Petty. And then the opening is, you know, bum, 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 bum. Uh, just simple, plain Jane chords, and the drums are straight up. I think we did that one mostly as a generic backing track but then the melody because it's so melodic we took the melody out with a tube into my mouth 
I just played one note on an arp. While the voice is shaping the words. So I listened to it this morning, and and it's like it's anti melody. Da 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 da. And then underneath it, Roger puts the melody in the background with a mini motor or something to do a melodic reminder of the melody. But the actual main voice is anti melody. And that's a talk box, one of those things with a tube in your mouth. Roger and I were trying to transpose this three chord song into some ugly key. Let's go down a fourth. Let's go down a minor second. Let's go up a sixth. And every damn option sounded good. Tom Petty's music was bulletproof. Even like a tritone, which is considered the ugliest change, actually worked and sounded okay. And we were like, damn, we can't screw this one up like we hoped to. And then we thought, oh, let's just go minor key. <laughs> And then minor key suggests a whole different feel. There's noises and a choir from the Mellotron, I think. You know, anything's gothic and scary, which is, again, very anti-Tom Petty. But if you think about it, and I don't know if people pay attention to, that song is about a freaking suicide, killing yourself by driving off Mulholland, your car over the canyon into the sky. That's what that song is about. It's not a nice song. It's not happy. And I don't think anybody's ever realized it. He literally wants to kill himself over this girl. And so our song might be the most close approximation of how it should have sounded. <laughs> On Are You Gonna Go My Way, the band swaps the original's Hendrix indebted sound for a futuristic country and western romp, complete with artificial whip cracks, in reference to the Green Acres theme song. Again, we were fans of so many of these switched-on records of the 60s and early 70s, and they were theatrical. I mean, people enjoyed American musicals and all of the uh, visuals, the cinematic visuals you could create with soundtracks. And these records were done by master arrangers and scorers and people who this was their life study. And so, if they wanted to reflect something Western or hoedown, or they wanted to merge styles and you know like baroque and hoedown <laughs> we wanted to play with that and we, we were having fun as amateur arrangers learning 
not only that craft, but how we could make these synths through sound design and so forth meet our needs. It was, we didn't have a meeting about this, but at the end of the day, that Lenny Kravitz song ends up, it just turns into like a, a gay cowboy electric party. Who wouldn't want to go to that? Yeah, it's just, it's just, <laughs> it's Western and it's a hoedown, but there's something very uh, San Francisco Castro District discotheque about it. And we know that, and we appreciate all that. And, and, and again, we're like sitting there going, like Brian said, oh, well, this is this is the exact opposite direction from any machismo that, that Lenny Kravitz was trying to uh, imbue and put forth in his album. So let's do it. The thing starts writing itself after a while. It's like, oh, we need a cracking whip sound. Well, somebody synthesized that. I think one of our most powerful design tools is a synthesizer called ARP 2600, which is kind of a classic. They're expensive now, and we had a few of them around. But you could really, really easily create a sound, and there's a push button on the front instead of playing a key that sometimes makes it easy. So to do this, and then a would be two separate sounds. We had to punch it in and put it together, but that's probably that synth because it's so good for sound design. Virtually every one of our songs found its way to the originator. There's only one originator, which we won't mention their name, didn't really like our version of their song. <laughs> so we'll just leave it there. like Teen Spirit, the national anthem of grunge is given a funky, Stevie Wonder-like makeover, greatly exemplifying Keyhue and Manning's proficient skills as pop arrangers. Back at those records, we were emulating specifically 1969 and 70 when everybody was trying to have a hit, like Switched on Bach had been a hit, and they're like, we can do that for the Beatles, we can do that for Burt Bacharach, we can do that for ABBA or something. They would all try over the next 10 years to make instrumental synth records, but they're normally not a lot of synths on there. They had these other session people playing behind like a lead synth so we kind of emulated that more than trying to do everything on a synth and Roger's clavinet playing is exceptional and it's one of the harder keyboards to play well unless you've studied it I mean a lot of piano players can play piano but on a clavinet it feels and acts weird to them 
It has a weird key action, doesn't travel far, not much touch sensitivity like a piano, not much weight like a piano, and it doesn't have dynamics. Like you hit a note, it's bang, it just goes. So it's very stiff to a lot of people and no sustain pedal. Yeah, and it's also not forgiving because it's so percussive. So if you're being rhythmic on a regular piano or even a Rhodes, your rhythm doesn't have to be particularly precise to have a good feel. You can kind of get away with things, and it actually uh, can work to your advantage. Uh, clavinet and Hammond as well, you have to be so precise rhythmically because if you have any looseness, it sounds shitty. It's not a good sloppy. Um, it, it just sounds like you don't know what you're doing and you're drunk. It's a very bright sound, and it's not, I'd call it aggressive, but it's sharp. It cuts through everything. So that, like Roger said, that percussion is one of its greatest features if you can nail it like Billy Preston, Stevie Wonder did. Um, Roger's quite good at it, and while we recorded, and as we were learning over time, that clavinets plugged straight in don't sound as good as one that's kind of messed with. So we would put it through little amps, or we'd put it through a wah-wah pedal or something to limit the sound of it, to not have so much fidelity, and it gets this kind of barking mid-range that cuts through anything but also leaves room for bass and drums and so forth. I'm pretty sure these clouds are biphased. Yeah, right. The Mutron pedal, big Mutron pedal, is called a biphase. It's two phase shifters in one. It was expensive even then as a vintage old pedal that most people didn't care about, but now they're real expensive. And I think we were just going for the more, you know, the more porno soundtrack, the better. And so it was just like more, more disco-y phaser. You know, conceptually, we going overboard uh, or in excess was not a bad word for us. sometimes how did you get that great sitar sound it is an electric sitar i don't know that if you had one if we borrowed one from somebody i think we borrowed it i worked at a store called black market music roger had introduced me to their original store up in san francisco as having the most amazing selection of vintage gear in the world and it was in a warehouse in san francisco in maybe 1990 or so 92 3 they yeah. were doing the, what nobody else was doing selling old pedals selling tons of vintage amps and a few guitars here and there, but most vintage stores only had vintage guitars. They didn't want an app. They didn't want pedals. They certainly didn't want like weird mics and PA systems. So they moved to L.A. and they hired me right away as one of their new employees. And we had incredible access to equipment. Most of it we bought if we wanted it, but once in a while we'd borrow some weird piece like that. And that is on the record several times. And I recall the solo section getting very raga, fake Indian feel like people used to do fake Indian sitar records and we have a little tambourine like the, like the Hare Krishnas and we have a drone going on and some wow, trippy sounds and that's not very much like Nirvana, is it? <laughs> and the chorus is when it's like hello, hello, hello there's not much happening so we'd be putting the sitars in and stuff like that but to make it interesting and there's not really a melody to play with much we did this trick which is called like random punching and if you take a track and let's say you play 
a synth sound. It could be a siren. It could be a dropping bomb noise. It could be a melody. But you record like 10 seconds of that, and then you hook up a different sound and a different part, maybe droop, 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 and you randomly punch in over the first track. And then you do a third sound, which might be dee doo dee doo dee doo dee doo And then you randomly punch in, in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out, so that there's no control over it. And when you get it done, that's what we have on the choruses of Teen Spirit, is this random punching where the synths are like just coming and going. It's a weird like kaleidoscope of sound, and it's a really cool effect. We used it on some solos later on, but it's definitely... Uh, I've never heard other people doing it, but it's a really interesting idea. You can just, every half second, quarter second, not even on the rhythm, the sound is changing to something different. I'm friends with Pat Smear, the guitar player at the end of Nirvana and Foo Fighters later. But Pat said, hey, we're going to pizza with Dave, the drummer from Nirvana. And so we went to pizza, the three of us, and we're talking. And Pat said something about Brian has a space rock duo called Moog Cookbook. And then Dave Grohl just said, holy crap. He goes, literally, if you could see my car, I have 10 CDs in my car. And one of them is your album. I listen to it a lot. I really, really like it. And he said... Of all the covers of Teen Spirit, and there had been a bunch by that point, he said, it's my favorite. I really love it. As we near the end of the record, we get an electronic dance pop interpretation of Pearl Jam's Even Flow. being one of our more challenging ones not because the song wasn't well written it's very melodic especially too but you know we didn't have a clear concept other than let's just rearrange it so we didn't have a clear story behind that one but I remember at some point there's these very simple parts that's more like Depeche Mode so we didn't reference that kind of synth stuff a lot but there is something very pure about Tepeche Mode who really can't play their keyboards so they picked out incredible melodies instead they couldn't program their keyboards so they played those incredible melodies with the most pure sounds and so we have that stuff going on in the choruses too uh, to kind of reference that stuff although we're not doing a Tepeche Mode rip off maybe we should have at that point <laughs> yeah I mean, I think it's all seeping through us and our childhoods and what inspired us. Um, yeah, that one, I remember a lot of 
you know, the only uh, environments that were providing any competition to Brian and I are, uh, in, in hunting down vintage synths that we admired uh, was the kind of underground dance community, uh, which was doing a lot of uh, industrial, post-disco, ho- early house stuff at the time. You know, and I, I loved their punk rock spirit. It was, uh, you know, two guys working out of their garage, no money, uh, making the most of whatever equipment they had. In many cases, it was like the 303, the Roland, and, and uh, a 909, um, and, and a junkie sampler. Um, and, uh, man, did, they, did a lot of the cooler ones get a lot of mileage out of that. You know, not to mention the... Um, what's that era of British... Um, uh, you know, early industrial wave uh, yeah. like Nitzer Ebb and Front 242. I mean, all these groups. I mean, early Human League. KMFDM and stuff. Uh, KMFDM, right? That's like the next. Anyway, there's all these phases, none of which were incredibly popular. It was all underground. But a, a lot of these guys were very aware of how cool the older equipment was, and they were the only other people hunting for it in addition to us. And so I remember this song being almost. Uh, in the spirit of those pieces of music, again, the antithesis of a guitar band like Pearl Jam, uh, but make, making it very club, very aggressive, kind of industrial, uh, punky club, uh, electronic, primitive electronic music, which in, in a lot of ways was starting to already become a cliche at the time that we got our hands on it. Even with um, the next album where we do uh, More Than a Feeling by Boston, we were parodying house music. And yet, it's still going on. People are still doing house remixes in order to break songs in clubs. And it's like, it's been 30 years and we were, you know, poking fun of it back then. The album's penultimate track, The One I Love, originally written and recorded by the legendary Athens, Georgia band R.E.M., is a deliciously kitschy treat drenched in Hammond organ and wah-wah guitar. Hammond organ. We have wah-wah guitar. We have clavinet. This is straight up arranger music. Yeah, this is full on, this is just 70s pimp TV show. We're not going anywhere near close to caliber of of performances and arrangements that were happening by some of uh, uh, LA's top studio musicians, but ideally there's humor in that as well, that we're kind of like tripping on ourselves to to get to, to arrive at this thing. And Roger's got the clavinet work going once again, which is key to that feel. 
He's got the real Hammond organ we had down at the college there. That's right. And then a uh, real drum set, real bass even, and, and the Wawa guitar had this thing called a Fox pedal, F-O-X-X, which is very fuzzy looking, and it had amazing sounds built in. They're like one of the coolest old pedals, an adjustable Wawa, so you can set you know, just the sound you want, and it, it really helps the songs feel like that kind of icky 70s arranger-based music with the synths barely being on top. It's mostly not synth, which was true for a lot of those records. modulate to some really weird things there, <laughs> which your REM never even modulates. This is a one verse, one chorus. I mean, it really is one sentence four times, and then the chorus is like fire over and over again. There's no songwriting in this song at all, but it works as a great record. But then we decided to go jazz fusion on it, which is something we rarely could do, but certainly have a background in that. So that you know, came to the fore at that point. <laughs> and Jazz Fusion is, you know, so, chord substitutions. Instead of just playing a straight G or C minor, you know, you find chords on top that are very detached but kind of vaguely reference it so that they sound wrong to a... Yeah, you're harmonically extending. Yeah. And and so, again, if you take, if you apply that to an REM 1-4-5 song and then you start going into the extension zone, the listener the listener's going to go... What's wrong with this picture? This is not... Yep. This hurts. It's like putting toothpaste on a pizza. It, it's something you're <laughs> familiar with, but it doesn't belong there. There's the fourth Moon Cookbook album. Yeah, ends with Rockin' in the Free World by the godfather of grunge, Neil Young, whose 1989 original would experience a resurgence in popularity a few years before the release of the Moat Cookbook, following a performance of the track by Young and Pearl Jam at the 1993 MTV Video Music Awards. For this recording, the band maintains the same raucous spirit of the original, while also making it uniquely their own. And in doing so, creates the ideal conclusion to the record.
I do remember this one being, you know, it's a rock track, and we didn't actually go far away from that because it's such a good song and it's so rocking. I know tons of people have covered it because it's a great, simple song that anyone can play well. But we definitely put fuzzy synths instead of guitars on it. So those are not, you know, guitars playing, but they are guitars through, like, the Fox fuzz pedal and things like that to make it rock. For the album art, the band will work with photographer Vicki Burnt to capture an image of Keyhue and Manning as their Moog cookbook personas, playing up the project's kitsch factor by donning space helmets and gold suits. I had the gold lame from um, a jellyfish video, um, which I wear in the video, uh, and then the helmets Brian and I had seen down at the you know Halloween 24-hour Halloween costume party supply, and they were two dollars. So again, it just it worked with the theme, which was just big, dumb, and stupid. These helmets, uh, there was nothing special about them. They were quite generic, um, but uh, and then I guess you were able to put together. Your gold. Uh, yeah, I think there was also suit. the Hollywood costume shop, uh, just gold suit, whatever it was from. I don't think we've talked about it, but we decided to put fake names on the record just because we thought, well, it'd be fun to have characters and to play it up even more. People will get that it's us because we're thanked on the record and so forth, but some people didn't. And Miko, Eno is Roger's name. Yeah, from the disco guy. The disco arranger Miko, you know, a ton of records um, that were pretty successful during the disco era. And, of course, uh, you know, that's obvious. Especially when he was in Roxy Music. And that synthesizer work is just exceptionally weird and great. And then mine was Uli Noming, which is a strange one because Uli Roth is the guitar player of the Scorpions and a total, like, hippie-looking guy with a mustache and caftans and scarves and stuff. But we thought it was a good spacey-sounding name. And then Nomi, based on Klaus Nomi, the amazing singer and performer who passed away from AIDS, one of the first patients to die of AIDS. The pictures were taken, you can't see there, but it's on Malibu Beach. So we're actually in front of the water, although we did some shots in the water, thinking that would be funnier than the rest, is to have these guys with you know, spacesuits and keyboards standing in the ocean. But this was such a strong graphic image. And our photographer is our great friend, Vicki Burnt, who is so talented. And she got it right away. She knew how to get comedy out of pictures or things like that. We really worked well together. But it was a damn long day. We went down to Torrance because there was a Moog, Moog car factory. And we stood outside right. there factory plant nowadays you just photoshop that like we had flags and a sign that said you know synth research lab we put that in eventually or something but all these little pictures from a long day and then we went the back cover is the same day where we went into a photo studio that vicky had with with a you know plain white background and we stacked up four poly moves one of our favorite keyboards and two mini moves what we had wow yeah, I day. had, I had, I knew I had those, I had those two polymogs. You had one. Yeah. Where'd the fourth one come from? I think I had two because I had one that had, oh my god, a preset, but it didn't work well, and the other one we used a lot because it was totally dialed in. And the weirdest part of that story is I got it from Mark Vale, who wrote this book called Vintage Synths. Oh, right. Literally the first person to talk about synths that were old as being a cool thing. The day that book came out, our universe changed. 
because everyone was aware that older keyboards were cool and they had a history. But Mark had bought it from a guy named Dominic Milano, a keyboard magazine, who reviewed the Polymoog as when it came out new. So the keyboard I had that we used on this record was actually the one that was in Keyboard Magazine the day they got released. Well, <clears throat> yeah, strange. Restless Records releases the Moog Cookbook in May of 1996. The record would go on to do well overseas, particularly in Japan and France, but would also receive some unexpected attention back home. You know, the weirdest part is that like four days after the record came out, MTV was crazy about it, and MTV at that time was still the biggest thing in the world, bigger than any radio station or record labels were dying to put people on. We were on an indie label that was medium successful, but still indie at best. And they had bands like Spain or an old Jane's Addiction record that they put out, but no huge successes. And then suddenly MTV was calling them saying, we want Mo Kubik to play on our new show with Kurt Loder, and we're going to do a story about old synths are back. And these guys will be featured as like the house band. And so Roger's, I believe, in France on tour with his group. Uh, and... I was in L.A., and they're like, they want us to play live. And we're like, but we don't play live. It's a studio <laughs> record. So we had to yeah. put some backing tracks together, get some different spacesuits together, because we weren't, ours weren't available. But we got the same helmets, and we went to MTV. We rented some keyboards in town from a local place that had, like, a Prophet 5 and stuff. And then Kurt Loder came over. He's like, God, Prophet 5, this is like talking heads. And he knew exactly what we were all about, and the MTV people definitely got it but the first thing we ever played was i think they said it was like 80 million people watching mm. although to us it's just you know in a tv studio yeah but the funniest part is we had four pieces and they're going to play you in and out of the commercials like the people on the tonight show or you know late night shows yeah. would do but on the last piece they said we need you to go for like three minutes over the credits and we said but our song is only two and a half minutes long they're like, keep playing. So we literally had to keep jamming. And during that, I remember my helmet spins around and I can't see my fingers. And it looks like you're looking at the camera. So it must be on TV or MTV somewhere. But the helmet spins around. It looks like looking at the camera rocking out when I'm actually staring at the side of the helmet inside and can't see my fingers while we're trying to that play. Was the, that was the problem with those helmets. Yeah. You, the the, the, the uh, view is very limited in them. I literally, sometimes I had to hold my helmet down so I could look through the screen while I was looking down at the keyboard to play. Yeah. Um, and hyperventilating, like, well, everybody knows what that feels like from COVID masks, but um, yeah, there was no, there was, you couldn't breathe in those things. The crowd loved it from fans of ours like Tim Ferriss to, to little kids. That's yeah. how I think Dave Grohl even said he saw MTV and he almost fell off his couch. He's like, what is this? And it was so funny and different. Obviously, we weren't trying to be cool in the way that Debo had invented. Let's just be as weird as possible and, like, counter-normal. Because we're still comfortable with that. That is the punk rock aesthetic. Even if you're going against punk rock, that's punk rock. As attitude, at least. Keehew and Manning would go on to release another full-length with Restless. 1997's Ye Old Space Band. But by the next year, the band members would take a break from the project. Manning would become a longtime member of Beck's touring band, playing on many of his records 
as well as those by other artists, including Johnny Cash, Fiona Apple, and Interpol. While Keyhue would amass a long list of credits as a producer and engineer, as well as co-authoring the acclaimed 2006 book, Recording the Beatles, a comprehensive exploration of the equipment and techniques used by the Beatles during their storied career as recording artists. Though their professional paths would somewhat part, Keyhue and Manning's friendship has remained in the ensuing years, as well as their specific passion that initially brought them together. And as for their feelings on the record they made nearly 30 years ago, the members of the Moe Cookbook are still proud of what they were able to create together. Personally speaking, I'm just grateful for the opportunity. That what, what was ever going on in my life at the time allowed me uh, to carve out the time to do this with Brian in his schedule and uh, not only amuse the hell out of ourselves, and that would have been good enough, but it's really brought a lot of... Uh, joy and laughter and curiosity to a bunch of people, both, both you know, our close friends network, but like we were saying, people on the other side of the world. We did very well in, in Japan, uh, but in France, and, and it's opened the door for so many different things, uh, but for both of us musically that would we would not have expected. Just, you know, uh, it, you head out in one trajectory and you're exposed to a variety of environments, and this this project opened up a whole bunch of doors that I certainly wasn't planning. I mean, you know, and I hindsight's always twenty twenty. I can go back and go, oh, I know what we should have done here. That would have been much more effective. Oh, I wish I would have done this differently when I played this drum part or whatever. And um, you know, but but I think, and because I've thought about this, I think I think if if I personally had strategize more about some of the architecture and what we were doing. My argument is that we could have had a, a greater commercial aspect to it, but it wouldn't it wouldn't have been the same Moo Cookbook record. I think I would have uh, sterilized and taken some of the um, beautiful spontaneity and whimsy and childlike um, spontaneity out of it, uh, and then it wouldn't be the first Moo Cookbook record. You know, because we definitely changed things and some attitudes for the second one. It's very it's very apparent. Well, at least it is to me. Yeah. And uh, like Roger said, it was it's weird that it was done for fun. There was no thought of plans or future or, like, we just want to make a record that we can laugh at. And our circle of friends, um, there's a small group of, like, half a dozen, ten people that we knew liked and appreciated those stupid records. Or if they heard a sound like, boo, boo would get the reference and also how bad it was to do that sound. It was dumb in 1976, but it's dumber in 1990-something. Um, practically illegal, almost. And that this record, I think the strangest part is that the material of the time was workable. Some of these songs come out really well, but they're not like we could go back in time. If we could pick songs of the 60s, we'd have a box set of a million great songs. <laughs> it was harder to find great songs in the grunge era that translated like Black Hole Sun does or Basket Case because they're not as interested in melody and chord changes, which is how we work. Yeah, they had to be popular enough for pe for the average person to know know them. Oh, I, I remember this R.E.M. hit. You know, I mean, they had to, they ha it had to be the hit parade, and so you're kind of at the mercy of that. But it still worked oh. out. 
and thinking about it, it's almost perfect because if we'd done something in the 80s, for example, synths are already popular. They're still, you know, in the forte of things. And then in the 2000s, retro was already big and everybody had gone that way. So to be a little bit ahead of a curve or maybe the beginning of a, a part of a wave where bands like the Rentals, who are friends with ours and other people, had a reference to the past in a fond way, still making fun, but it's not totally terrible, that we, we were actually perfect to go against huge power rock that is grunge. Grunge is all emotion. Well, we're not emotional. And grunge is all like power and angst and energy. And we're like, no, we're going to make a disco song. So it was fun to juxtapose. Again, this is the punk rock world. If grunge was the final success of corporate punk rock, then we were poking fun at that too. Thanks for listening to In Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Brian Keyhue and Roger Joseph Manning Jr. for speaking with me about this very special record. You can stream the Moog Cookbook and more from the band on the various streaming services, or you could do it the way God intended and check out your local record store. See if you can find a copy that way. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.